Oh, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the season finale of uh, uh, our tea and tech sessions uh, this uh, lockdown season. Uh, uh, this is our weekly discussion panel, obviously, looking at what's happening in the tech law world. Uh, I'm David Chaplin, uh, editor of Computers and Law, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Levy, uh, a barrister at Four Pump Court and current SCL trustee, Rebecca Keating, also a barrister at Four Pump Court and a regular contributor to Computers and Law and other sessions. And returning for a second appearance this season, Ashley Winton, tech law partner at McDermott, Emery and Will. And emerging for the scene for a bit part later will be Simon Forrester, the SEL's resident techie uh, and the Ridley Scott of webinar, webinar production. Just a reminder that while uh, we are discussing, uh, the chat panel is open. So please send in any uh, any comments or insights that you have on what we're discussing, uh, and we can weave those into the conversation as we go along. Before we get on to the main event, just a, a reminder on a few uh, SEL events coming up. Uh, on Monday, there is uh, a trainee and joint junior lawyers uh, session um, for any trainees and junior lawyers out there, obviously. Uh, contracts 102, where contracts can go wrong. Uh, that's a follow-on from the successful uh, Contracts 101 session they recently organised. After Easter, there's the joint debate, as you can see on your screen, with the British Computer Society on whether we would rather be ruled by an algorithm than politicians. The actual question is a bit more nuanced than that, but um, essentially that's the, uh, the gist of it. And looking further ahead... Um, uh, further dates for your diary. Uh, bookings not yet open on these these two. Uh, the fifteenth of June, the Privacy and DP Group Masterclass on getting ready for the new SCCs. Um, while the one you should all pencil in is the annual conference, which will take place online again this year, over the sixth and seventh of October, uh, under the theme Tech Law and Civil Society. So talking of civil society, uh, I assume that includes our politicians. Uh, and Ashley, you have uh, spotted spotted them getting involved in data protection strategy um, uh, over, the, over the last week um, and some moves that might shine a light on where we are heading with regards to data protection under our new status. Thank you, David. Well, uh, as you know, I'm a fan of a conspiracy theory, and I think I can con concoct one here. So a very dull headline, it says there's a new MOU uh, between the uh, ICO and the DTMS uh, about their understanding. And I have the hint of uh, the ICO's pen being forced uh, to sign it, uh, because it, even, in the, even in the headline, the press release, it has this rather interesting, uh, the document will ensure the ICO's position as an independent regulator is not impacted by its role in adequacy assessments, which really means that the person who's boss for adequacy assessments is the government and not the ICO. And we've seen a version of that before, of course. If you're as old as I am, you'll remember that for the European adequacy assessments, they were made by the European Commission. And the so-called Article 29 Working Party used to complain about them and complain about transfers all they liked, and they were just happily ignored. So I wonder whether we might see the same thing here that the adequacy assessments, um, the government in full flow, uh, might put uh, the ICO in a position that they might not be comfortable with. Two more bits of gossip, though, for that conspiracy theory, uh, or maybe three. The first is, of course, the ICO's job is up 
you, you can you can have this job if you like, David. Of course, uh, of course yes. it's it's a lot of money. I've got the uh, I've got the advert here, and uh, it's clear that in the specification for the job, they have to maintain the high standards of data protection without creating unnecessary barriers to data use, whilst following the government's data strategy. I wonder if that means they're independent. Uh, or not. And what else? Oh, well, in the MOU here, look, as a lawyer, if you want to get someone to sign something, agree to something, you sign it and send the letter to them for them to countersign the same time. No discussion. So mysteriously, on the MOU sign between the ICO and the DCMS, um, government signed it on 22nd December, but Elizabeth Denham didn't sign it until two or three weeks later which makes me think it perhaps wasn't amended by the ICO very much. So we'll see. We could see this whole new landscape of new data transfers to other countries approved by the government, much to the chagrin of the ICO and potentially, of course, our European friends. So do you think they are, they, they are lining the new commissioner up to, to have a, their, their wings clipped? I think they've got strings. It's like a puppet. Yeah. You know, one of those puppet things, you know, those strings, yeah. I think, I think they're going to be carefully led in the direction that, that we want. You know, we know the direction that the government wants. Uh, we had this fine statement um, uh, saying that they want to have adequacy and, you know, the 145 countries data could, UK data could go to. So let's bring on the adequacy okay. assessments. I just don't see how that's going to work um, in parallel with our European system. So it's going to be tension there, clearly. This was John Whittingdale writing in Privacy Laws and Business this week. Exactly, this week. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he chose the UK's finest privacy publication uh, yeah. to announce this bit of major policy. Uh, but yeah, yes, so big ambitions from the government. Uh, Ashley, you say you're a conspiracy theorist, so come on. So what, what is the country and what is the type of data that's behind all this? I think that, uh, well... I'm an old man, so when I started on this data protection stuff, everyone just ignored me. No one followed the laws, and actually the country worked fine. And I just wonder if the politicians remember those old days where everyone ignored privacy lawyers and business and commerce worked perfectly well. So I wonder whether they might cover all sorts of data, and they just want to you know, free up access. And there's a recognition now, of course, that lots more countries around the world have uh, their own data protection laws, and so, therefore, you know, your data is probably going to be okay. Or isn't, but it won't be anyway. Or it won't be anyway. Or there's nothing, or there's nothing you can do about it, so tough. <laughs> um, you know, this, this data transfer bit, that was only ever introduced by the, by the EU. The OECD standards before didn't have that data transfer restriction. So it's a relatively new uh, requirement. It's kind of an EU-specific one. So, you know, maybe the... Maybe the uh, UK is thinking about that and thinking of Convention 108 and, and, you know, that sort of pattern for international data protection compliance. If I was a real conspiracy theorist, that's what I believe in. Okay. I look forward to this time next year when we can see where we are. Yeah, well, let's come back and find out. Exactly. If our data is scattered to the four winds, uh, then, uh, I, you know, I'll be very smug. Exactly. Well, he did, he did use in that article uh, a couple of phrases that caught my eye, outcomes-based approach and solutions-orientated approach. I think he's 
Because he was in uh, talking about data transfer to the stock exchange, uh, uh, the US stock exchange, in one specific example that we'd work out a deal there. So, do you think there'll be a lot rather than saying, "Right, we've got an adequacy decision," we've got a deal with certain people who need who need our data? Well, that way forward. I mean, it's you know, if you just sit back and design this whole thing again, it's not inconceivable that you'd want to have a risk based approach or more of a risk-based approach. I know they say GDPR risk-based. That's not really what the GDPR is. If you wanted to have a real risk-based approach, then you could perhaps say that stock exchange data, yeah, there might be some personal data in there, but you know, it's it's not going to infringe anyone's rights. And it's kind of important to have a free flow of that data. That sounds sensible. Um, but it's always extent and degree is where the law should come into play. So yeah, we could have a whole new regime. The data, that would be really exciting. Are we sophisticated enough as society to cope with proper risk-based regulation? Well, I think the youngsters, and that's everyone else in the court, we've we've given up on the we've given up. We've already sent our data onto the social media networks. It's already out there, we've given it away. It's too late. You've you've yeah, everyone's got it. So you you've made consciously or unconsciously, you've made that risk-based assessment. You've published your data. People can generate these hugely wonderful profiles about you. You know, the, the horse, stable door, open, horse bolted. Uh, that's where we are. So, Rebecca, have you got any, um, any thoughts on this? No, I'm just listening to the apocalyptic future that actually is depicted and getting mildly <laughs> terrified, <laughs> making a to-do list of all the uh, platforms I'm going to remove after this uh, meeting, I think is where, where I'm getting through on this. I, I think you have different na- I think I always thought that different names per platform was the way to go. I could be Ashley Facebook, for example, on Facebook, uh, or Ashley LinkedIn. I mean, that would, that would seem to be a good strategy for protecting your data. It's people being honest and using their real name is causing us problems. <laughs> there are others who differ on that one, aren't they? But um, <laughs> we're not going into those arguments at the moment. Um, and all of this is a matter of governance. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Facebook, I believe, are beginning to see the, the problems of becoming their own nation state. Um, and uh, governance is becoming uh, their bureaucratic empire is continuing to build. Uh, this week, the Guardian leaked some internal moderation guidelines that go further than the guidelines we have seen before. Uh, and Rebecca, this caught your eye for many reasons, I believe. Yeah, absolutely, David. So as you say, it's on that uh, theme of the ever-expanding empire of social media. Um, yes, yeah, so as you say, these documents were leaked. Um, and they're the documents that individuals will um, review when they're looking at content that's been flagged by users. Uh, it's quite detailed, apparently 300 pages long. Um, we all haven't had the pleasure of reading them yet. Um, but there were actually quite a few points of interest. But the ones that really caught my eye um, were the first was the definition of a public figure. And the second was the distinction that Facebook then draws between how public figures and private users can be treated on the platform, which I thought was quite interesting. On the first point, um, the definition of public figure was very broad. I fortunately don't come under the definition, but uh, it is somewhat broader than the Boris Johnsons and Kim Kardashians of the world, which um, I found a bit surprising. And um, so all politicians count, whatever level of government they're in, whether elected or standing for office, any journalist who's employed to write or, write or speak publicly, 
Um, online fame is also covered out. You only need to have 100,000 users. Um, and then anyone who's been mentioned in a newspaper article or preview, uh, five articles in the last two years, will get you the dubious title um, of a public figure on Facebook. Um, and what's quite interesting about that is then you're just treated differently. And the one that I think really captured and the public's imagination was what's somewhat ominously called the call for their death um, guidelines. And basically what that means is that that would be a permissible statement to make on Facebook about a public figure, um, but not about a private individual. Um, so it really opens up that discussion, I think, about how we're really trying to, at the moment, deal with online harms and how um, we treat individuals online and whether this really includes the increasing level of abuse that public figures are also um, open to and how social media platforms deal with that, which I thought was quite interesting. So in that case, a, a parish councillor would be a public figure? Uh, so a parish councillor, yeah, I mean, this is really pulling into my little internal guideline. If they were in five newspaper articles, yes, uh, to the extent that they're elected, um, obviously they might fall within that as well. It's obviously your local celebrity, you know, someone who saved a dog from a local river. If there's enough um, articles written about them, they'll fall within scope. Um, so it's really those unwitting public figures, I think, is quite interesting. So, yeah, maybe the parish councillor can end up being the subject of online abuse. Yeah, because with that idea of, you know, you can call for the death of your local parish councillor and get away with it, if uh, that's what it strikes me as. Um, yeah, so there, there is a distinction that is drawn, which is somewhat helpful, which is that if you right. tag the individual, that is not permitted. But if you just declare it as a post, that's fine. Um, so I think there is some level of protection, I suppose, for the, um, the feelings of the individual, but not for the general amount of information that's going about online in terms of that person, which is a little bit troubling. On the general question, do we do we think that Facebook will ever get on top of this <laughs> uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a sensible way? I think it's interesting because obviously when we talk about anything like this, we really get into kind of a debate about what tech companies are responsible for and to the extent that they're responsible for their users, which is obviously really difficult. I think what's interesting about this example is that this is the guide, these are the guidelines that moderators are being given when a post has been flagged. So we're not talking about here to the extent that Facebook needs to go out onto their platform and search out bullying what we're talking about here is information being drawn to their attention and what they have to do in those circumstances, um, which I think is a little bit more compelling for saying that they have a little bit more of a role when that happens, um, as opposed to going out and, and finding the posts themselves. And there's a, sure, a huge public policy issues here. I mean, do you think it's right that we only find out about this because it's being leaked, or do you think this should all be in the public domain anyway? No, absolutely. Good question, Matthew. Um, I think that really this, I mean, there is a reason that I can obviously think of as a tech company why you don't want to provide these guidelines, because you would say individuals are then able to craft their posts around the rules in a way to avoid them. And that is a compelling point. Um, however, I think in a world where we're becoming increasingly more concerned about the way that people behave online, uh, I think having a bit more of an insight into how tech companies review your posts and how those decisions are made uh, should be a little bit more detailed than the five-line summary that someone gets if a post is flagged. Not that I have personal experience of that, but just 
I've heard. No, you're not a councillor yet. That's <laughs> no, <right. laughs> not yet. Yeah, I haven't levelled to local fame quite yet. I'm still working on that, Matthew. So, got a bit of time. Do you think you're the first person ever to have put uh, Kim Kardashian and Boris Johnson together in a single sentence? Matthew, I did. It did occur to me when I said their sentence, their names in the same sentence, that I took great pleasure in putting <laughs> those two words colliding on a T and Tech. So yes, it was a little bit deliberate picking uh, those two collisions. I think Boris Johnson would be delighted to be listed in the same sentence as Kim Kardashian. So I think compliment for him. <laughs> Uh, and we'll all be out there trying to get 100,000 followers now. Is that 100,000 followers on Facebook or is it Instagram or was it just purely Facebook? That's, that's a... No, it's a good question, David. I know you're hunting down to see what social media fame you need. It's any platform you'll be delighted to hear. So you can focus on your Twitter, your Instagram, any one of those, it'll get you the. Oh, right. okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I can, yeah, I can, yeah, I can uh, narrow down my efforts. Yeah. 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 Well, that's how CL Radio will do. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley, have you got any, uh, any, any insights on this? Um, well, you know, Facebook's really its own country now, isn't it, to be yeah. honest? So I think it's, it's fair that there are rules for that country, uh, but it's um, really a horribly complicated area and um, certainly seems to me that some of the tech companies have enjoyed rather historical laws about um, being an intermediary online and I think it's probably right. That does need to be looked at. The, the method that we had 100 years ago was just simply to write in the terms and advise clients, uh, just say, you know, you're a publisher, that you don't moderate, but you reserve the right to moderate, and then secretly behind the scenes, moderate like hell. Yeah. Uh, that was advice we used to give, and, and that doesn't that clearly is not good enough now. So we do need something else. I'm not sure if this is it. I don't know what you, you guys think, but um, we do need something else. And what kind of guidelines would the Instagram for under 13s require? I mean, that, that's, that, that's the other thing that's come out last week or two, isn't it? That they're, they're planning an Instagram or thinking about developing an Instagram for under 13s. What, any thoughts on that? Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, I, that's, what, that's my only thought. But I, I, you know, I just wondered whether anybody had any opposing thoughts on that. No, I'm going in the don't do it boat as well. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, one of the one of the things having kids of, of that sort of age, one of the things that I've noticed is that with online content and uh, content and uh, TikTok and games and things, they're really good at making them addictive. You know, having those little yeah. nudges to bring the child back in or the adult back in front of the screen. It's really sophisticated now, and I think that's something that we should. As much as I support that, because I like companies to make money. I think that working on those kind of um, gambling time addictive behavior, especially with kids, we need to keep an eye on that, I think, because that could be a bit damaging, especially as my kids should be doing revision now, and they're probably on YouTube, I expect. So. Well, it's the sort of convergence, isn't it, of uh, the gaming, but also the online aspect and the purchasing aspect. It's all sort of shoved there together. And, um, and you're right, it's, it's pretty scary stuff, actually. Okay, going back to the 100,000 followers, somebody's put in a comment here. Um, uh, many followers are bots. Do they count? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That's actually a really good question. Um, obviously, we haven't had the benefit of seeing the guidelines, so I don't know how strict the definition is. But from the information available, it's just 100,000 followers. So if they're not real people, uh, yeah, you could just purchase yourself a load of bots if you do want to get this, this type of It seems like that'll work for you that way. 
get a red badge or something. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although I think the platforms try quite hard to detect bots these days, don't they? They do. They do. Yeah. 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 We'll give them that. We will give them that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, on the theme of harm, let's move on to the theme of uh, the, the problems of the Microsoft Exchange security exploit um, that's caught your eyes, uh, Matthew. It's been running for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, so we thought we might uh, we'd, uh, tackle that now. So what 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 ramifications are you looking at, Matthew, on that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, sorry, this is a bit of an old story, isn't it? But we haven't covered it. And it's we haven't covered it, no. and important. Uh, so just, just in case people don't know what this is all about, um, the, the story is there's a cherry group called Hafnium, and they appear to have discovered and then exploited amazingly not just one, but a whole series of zero-day vulnerabilities on the exchange server. Uh, so a few questions arise already out of that. Who's Hafnium? Uh, not exactly clear, but they are thought to be an advanced group of hackers and um, an APT in the trade uh, with links to the Chinese state. Uh, what's a zero-day vulnerability? a newly discovered one, one that doesn't yet or didn't yet at the time have a patch. Now, why this is so interesting, I mean, there, there are vulnerabilities in pieces of software all the time, uh, but these vulnerabilities were in Exchange Server, which is a pretty cool bit of kit, and they were really terrible vulnerabilities. Uh, they allowed untrusted users to log on to Exchange Servers, uh, to take control of those servers, uh, to exfiltrate the entire contents of mailboxes, and what's quite interesting about this is the way it all developed, because the world started with um, uh, what seemed to be some very narrow, very specific and targeted um, attacks on organizations for the purposes of grabbing specific mailboxes. And then towards the end of February, the attacks became more widespread and indiscriminate. And they involved then not just grabbing data, but punching massive insecure backdoors into numerous exchange servers, and that put at risk absolutely vast quantities of data. Uh, forward to the 2nd of March, D-Day. On the 2nd of March, Microsoft released a bunch of patches, and it took the relatively unusual step of recommending all of its customers immediately install patches. You don't normally do that. You normally actually test them first, think about it. What's going to be the, the collateral damage from the patches? But no, no, immediately apply them. Uh, now, the problem then was that a whole bunch, of, of course, once you release the patch, you're telling the world, oops, we have a problem here. Now, for those who then quickly patch, not such a big deal. Uh, but, of course, the side effect of announcing you've got these security fixes, which must be installed instantly, is a whole bunch of people don't do it. And then you've just announced to the criminals left, right and centre that there are a bunch of security exploits you can play with. So what do you do if you're um, not a state sort of high level clever attacker, but a humdrum a mediocre attacker, well, you get the security patches, you have a little look at them, you reverse engineer them, or you look at someone else's blog where they've done it, and then you say, aha, we, we can take the low road. Uh, now someone's done the hard work of finding all these hacks. Uh, we're going to exploit them, and we're going to do things like put in ransomware attacks. We're going to nick a whole bunch of data. We're going to cause a huge amount of havoc. Now, I saw an estimate last week that there are approximately there were then approximately 450,000 unpatched exchange servers out there, okay? Uh, perhaps a slightly a lower level now, who knows? But let's say there are about half a million unpatched exchange servers out there. That is a massive great hole in a hell of a lot of cybersecurity. Now, before I turn to lessons to be learned and possible legal fallout, Simon, can you tell us a bit more about the actual attacks? Certainly. 
Um, I think to understand how this works, the first thing to understand is what a web server is, because this is all exchanges delivered over web in this sense. And a web server is simply a hard drive with a, a service running on it to serve you files. And that's all it's doing. When you type in a URL for a website and you'll have domain.com slash folder slash folder slash file, that's kind of the same as you having those folders in your My Documents folder that is being handed to you by someone else. And so web servers, certainly at the beginning, literally just served what we called flat files. And those normally end .htm or .jpg if it's an image. What happened then is as web development continued, we wanted to do clever things with web pages. And you'll start to see things like .php and .aspx. And these aren't flat files. These are essentially small, you could think of them actually really as small executable files that will produce a web page. But when they do that, they do that on the server. So when you go along and you go to an ASPX page, you're actually technically kind of running a bit of software on the server. So far, so good. Very useful. However, if you allow someone to upload a file to your server, let's say, uh, hey, we're talking about Facebook already, right? So I want to share a photo. That's fine. I can upload a JPEG file. And if their architecture is not great, they'll put it in a directory, and then they'll point people at that directory, and those people can download that JPEG file. If they were to accidentally allow me to upload an ASPX file or a PHP file, then I can take anything I want, I can put it in that file, I can upload it to the server, I can visit it in a web browser, and I can execute that program. And so a web shell is essentially a program that through the web interface will then give me the ability to type in shell commands as if I was sat at that server. And so it's basically a shell delivered over the web. The exploit is how you get it onto the server. And so what they were patching was somehow, somewhere, there was a gap that allowed someone to upload one of those files and then access it via a web browser once it was on the server. And, of course, the problem is once there's a web shell in place, you can literally do everything, including steal data, including mailboxes, anything else on the server. You can install more software on the server. Uh, and as has happened a lot in this particular case, you can then leave it wide open so anyone else can stumble across the same web shell and do the same sorts of things. Absolutely. The thing is, that that service that delivers web pages, if you, um, if you run a piece of software on your computer, that software runs as you. The web service on a web server, that software runs as the system. It's like one above the administrator. So the moment that you're running a piece of software, as the system account, yeah, the exfiltration of data, the zipping up of everyone's email is actually a relatively simple thing. You could run, you could do them a favor and run Windows Update, or you could just format the hard drive. You can do anything. You you have the sort of the smile of a man who's thought about even trying, but don't answer, don't answer that question. I wrote one <laughs> once when I had a web server that I'd lost control of and realized that I'd left a back door in. <clears throat> And one of my admin tools to allow me to upload a file. So I did and took shell control over that server. It's a very useful tool at times, you know, but then so are guns. Uh, moving swiftly on for that last <laughs> comment. Okay, what about the legal fallout? Uh, I mean, there are a number of things, aren't there? I, I think there are, there are four in particular that I'm watching out for now. First point, if you're an organization who's getting hacked now, and by now I mean late March, not, say, the 2nd of March or February, uh, 
there you are really risking a rocky ride, I think, with the ICO if a whole bunch of your personal data gets um, exfiltrated, to use that rather nice term. Uh, in regulated industries, law firms, for example, I think there are other regulators who might be interested in this as well. Uh, and I do wonder how many unpatched law firm servers and sets of chambers servers there are. I would be astonished if the number was zero. It'll be a greater number than that. Uh, the the uh, second um, thing that's going to arise is depending on who gets hacked, I think we're going to see some claims as well. And, and I don't just mean the sort of GDPR style data loss of control type claims, but also in a commercial context. I mean, if you have a, a whole bunch of um, emails, I mean, there are potential claims for breach of confidence. There are potential claims to breach of contract for failing to secure commercially sensitive material. So I think we may see a lot of that. Third, um, organizations who are facing these sorts of claims and more likely their insurers are going to want to pass off that liability onto service providers. So downstream claims, there's a bit of a theme here. Uh, but, but fourth, I think possibly most interesting to me anyway, is when out IT outsourcing deals are going on, the dynamic may change because now it seems to me that cloud first strategies have got a massive boost because Exchange Online was not affected by this attack. This was about on-prem. And it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, a sort of frequently asked question when you're talking to service providers about a cloud-based strategy is, oh, but is it secure? What warranties and indemnities are you going to give me around security on the cloud? Answer generally, well, none, you must be joking. It's not in our control. It's a lot of it's down to Amazon, to Microsoft, to whoever. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps the penny is going to drop now, if it hasn't already, that actually security done by massive commoditized compute platform providers is often way better than the security you can possibly do on-prem unless you're really amongst the most sophisticated operators in the world. Increasingly, I think the soft underbelly of security isn't the cloud. It's the unpatched local IT estate. And this is a lesson about that. Yes, uh, Matthew, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in, in previous life, I have been out there selling software and uh, encouraging people to go to the cloud to law firms, smaller law firms, let's say, this is 10 or 15 years ago, of course, but um, they've caught up probably, but but they'd say, oh, yeah, but the security, the security, the security. And I'm looking at their their setup and it's in the back room of somewhere, yeah, number 13, High Street, Tunbridge Wells, something like that. And you know full well that that is not going to be any more, more secure than uh, going on the cloud, especially now, of course, like, you know, um, and uh, and I suspect some of those 450,000 unpatched exchange servers are sitting there almost unnoticed mm. in a back room somewhere. Uh, you know, uh, the, the people have forgotten they're there almost. Yeah, it's um, slightly alarming. And of course, even well-run organizations have this sort of problem. Yeah. I, I Obviously, I'm not going to tell you who, but I've, I've, more than one um, client I've had where we've been dealing with things like moving projects to move data centers, move out of data centers, you have not just an exchange server, you can have whole racks of equipment uh, where people genuinely don't know what they are. Yeah. And no one dares to unpatch them, switch them off. Uh, but you know, <laughs> the security footprint of that sort of thing is, is just frightening. And, and it's happens all over. It's an inevitable result of the accretion of lots of tech over time. And by outsourcing, I, I sound like I'm trying to be a cloud evangelist. I am, in a way, I've got, not from an investment perspective, but I am, I'm really keen on, on this sort of thing. Uh, because you, you outsource to a commoditized provider, and, and these problems just get outsourced to someone else. Mm. And, uh, yeah. 
Actually, we've got that, that was a catalyst. Actually, it? Rebecca, have you got anything to add on to this? Well, the conspiracy theorist in me says that actually every company is hacked. Your default position is that you are hacked. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the only safe assumption. There is something in your systems today at the moment which may or may not be activated yet, but could be in the future, uh, and it's there. And there's nothing you can do about it, really. Everyone's in the same boat. I think that – and so um, – you know, with this and solar winds, not too long ago, these are really serious hacks. Um, we don't seem to see the amount of legal fallout as I would expect, or maybe secretly, I hope, as a lawyer. But the um, what we might see, I wonder, actually, so Matthew, do you think we might see more kind of spoofing attacks where people are able to create emails, you know, to pretend to be the the FD to make that internal email that says, you know, please send a thousand or a hundred thousand pounds to so-and-so account, because I tend to find that clients can get really easily stung with that sort of uh, deception, and then hard cash kind of goes out the door. Do you think this hack will increase um, those sorts well, of I, I mean, that, that sort of attack has increased massively, hasn't it, in the last few months or year or so of lockdown anyway? Uh, and it's, it's a good point you raise, actually, because uh, obviously, it makes it an awful lot easier to do a convincing job if you're not just spoofing, um, for example, by doing an out by one error on a domain name, but you actually really do have an account on that server because you've just logged in and given yourself one. And so I, that that may well happen. I, I haven't seen anyone say that it has, in fact, happened, but why not? I mean, that and ransomware are kind of the easy things to do, aren't they, if you've got a backdoor into a server? Now, this is one of the few occasions where I actually think there is a value in ringing up your lawyer quickly because there are, as you guys can tell me, but there's some techniques you could use to try and help, or A, you speak to your bank, but there's some techniques to try and get that money back if you can move quick enough. Uh, so that's one of the few really good proactive things the law can help here, uh, you know, before lawsuits and ICO investigations and all, all the rest of it. So... Lord does have a use at that stage, I think. Well, that's a that's yeah. nice optimistic thought. Yeah. <laughs> Is Rebecca anything to add on that? And no, I was just going to say, it's quite an interesting way, I think, about thinking about a crisis before it happens and kind of being a bit forward and thinking. I was struck as well, Matthew and David, when you were talking about uh, people's reluctance sometimes um, towards the cloud. I had a client once in a previous job at a cloud services company. He was very reluctant to move to the cloud but then it transpired that their whole basement had been flooded the year before and they'd lost countless amounts of um, data that way. So I thought it was interesting that there was a physical flood that they were less worried about than, uh, than moving to the cloud. So it just shows people's priorities can, uh, can be not what you expect. Yeah. Okay, well, we must sort of draw to a close, um, but there was one last, last and finally moment, uh, our weekly dose of NFT mania. Uh, Rebecca, you meant you... You spotted that a virtual house on Mars sold for five hundred thousand uh, dollars this week, uh, or two hundred eighty-eight ether to be precise. Um, surely the house is worth it. Um, well, David, in the last few months, I have quite often contemplated how much I would enjoy a change of scene. So, if there was ever a time I would be tempted to buy a house on Mars, it would be now. Uh, but I think I think it's too much for that. I think The Sims is enough of a virtual world for me if I uh, want to to explore that. And so, as anyone, um, as we're rounding off, and it's an NFT mania, is anyone going to invest in an, uh, a non fungible token based piece of art or whatever in the next few months? Well, all, all I'll say is um, 
if you've got a spare moment, drop me a line, you can come and look at my house. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might be fungible. Uh, Ashley, are you, are you attracted by um, uh, Jack Dorsey's tweets? Oh, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems to be like an extension of all those stories we had before with people selling artifacts in Second Life, and uh, and it's just the same the same thing. And um, I'm afraid we have a little family rule in this household that no money is to be spent on DLC, that that digital content. So that's that's the family rule because I I can't see. I'm sorry, I just can't see the value in it. Uh, so NFTs are right now. Okay, that's great. Thanks for that fantastic discussion, uh, covering a lot of uh, topics there. Um, uh, if you wish to show your appreciation for our speakers and panelists' efforts today, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash SCL. Um, any money raised there is funneled back to SCL student activities. Um, you may also want to check out all our previous tea and tech sessions, which are on the dedicated page of our website, scl.org slash t and tech. Uh, that was all there, uh, previous recordings and uh, other bits and pieces. Uh, finally, this is the last t and tech session of this season, as hopefully we are now about to emerge from lockdown. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone who has contributed over the last two months, and of course, loyal listeners who've joined in to listen to us. It's been fun for me, and hopefully it's been fun for you as well. Uh, so maybe we'll see you again soon uh, in another guise. Thanks, Sam. Bye.